Welcome to the podcast. We talk about all the things that are hidden in the shadows. This is Isaac. And on this bonus episode, um, I'm interviewing uh, two, uh, well, one legend amongst the paranormal investigating world. And uh, one guy who's probably had more experiences with demons that I can probably count. Um, talking to Carl Johnson and James Annette. Did he? Anito. Sorry. I know you just told me I forgot already. Uh, how are you guys doing? Pretty good tonight. Pretty good tonight. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Glad to be here with you. Definitely. Yeah. Now, I know amongst uh, the paranormal world, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Carl is well known amongst, uh, I guess, anybody who's really into uh, the paranormal investigating and so forth. But James, I know you're, I guess, not a, a much of a household name, I would say, as Carl, but you're also well known amongst other demonologists, right? Yeah, I would say I'm uh, yeah. known around with in the realms of demonology and, of course, in the realms of uh, speaking at events and uh, some form of paranormal investigating, too. But, of course, like you said, not like the legend. <laughs> but I definitely have some. I have a reputable yeah. name. Yeah. But he's not, reputable. I can tell you this man is reputable. I would buy a car from this guy. He's okay. reputable. But I not, think I would. Probably yeah. What you got. Yeah. I, well, I used to sell cars a long time ago, mm. so it's possible I could sell you a car. But that's not what we're talking about, is it? No. Yeah. Uh, James, you're a deacon, right? I am a deacon with the United States Old Catholic Church, yes. All right. Uh, what's the difference between a deacon and a priest? So a deacon, within the Catholicistic belief, uh, Catholicism, um, a deacon can perform two sacraments, which is matrimonial and, of course, baptism. Um, and of course, a priest can perform six out of the seven, and then a bishop can perform the seventh, which is a lay of hands, which is, of course, uh, bestowing orders, holy orders on either a deacon or a priest. So a deacon can perform two sacraments, while a priest can perform six, and a bishop can perform seven. Ooh. So you uh, have the ability or never... I guess I guess I'll, I'll probably ask that later when we talk about it. But so you have the ability or to say power to perform exorcisms. I do not. So uh, an exorcism is not a sacrament; it's a sacramental. So technically, I could perform an exorcism. It's a right, though. Is it it's not? a right, but it's a sacramental, though. Yeah. So it, in the same sense, I could perform an exorcism in an emergency situation. But one of the leading reasons I cannot is, for one, I am not a trained exorcist with the church. I am actually, when I do become a priest, I will be not automatically become one, but I will start training to become an exorcist. Um, that is, uh, of course, my ministry work that I am involved in now um, as a demonologist assessing cases, but I will eventually become an exorcist. But the re- big reason that a deacon necessarily cannot perform an exorcism is the fact that due through the ritualist Romanus or the right of exit, solemn right of exorcism is, um, masses performed during exorcism uh, or within the confines of it. So I am a deacon. I can only perform deacon's mass. And unless the host is already blessed through the transubstantiation, um, I cannot bless the host. So that's why I could not necessarily perform an exorcism because I could not perform mass unless I already had a blessed host. Um, so technically, if I had a blessed host, which I do, I do have a tabernacle, and um, I do actually have some blessed hosts due to a, a fellow priest of mine doing so, if I ever want to perform a seeking's mass. So theoretically, I can perform an exorcism, but I am not properly trained, so I will not do so. I got another question I had. is uh, What's the misconceptions with demonologists? 
misconceptions is that they are uh, intimately involved with demons, that they cavort with demons, and it's just, you know, since we have so many of these wicked spirits floating around us, we're just not wholesome, and, uh, you know, if we go into a movie theater, clear the seat, do more than social distancing, just get out of our way. I mean, it it has a nefarious connotation, you might say, but my definition, which, you know, James agrees with, of demonology is a systematic study of the lore and cultural traditions of wicked spirits. It's a study. Now, we are applied demonologists in that we will intervene, we will go to somebody's house and perform an investigation if warranted, and we all agree on that. Uh, but, yeah, misconception about, you know, that we are all exorcists, that uh, we know how to summon demons, and, uh, you know, that's just not, the whole thing we do in life is demonology. And it's just not... It's an avocation and an interest, but uh, it's not all we do since we don't get paid for it. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, but that's that's about it. It has a you know a lot of mojo attached to it. It's you know people think it's something wicked, something really to avoid. You can say somebody's a cleric and you know even an exorcist, but once you say they're a demonologist, so you're on a first name basis with these demons? No, no, no. We study them. We're familiar with these, but you. You call them up? No, no, we don't. But you know how to? Yes. Ah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a, it's not the first person you invite to supper. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then mom, so, I'm dating a demonologist. No, you are not. And he said it perfectly too. Like an exorcist could be considered a demonologist, but a demonologist could not could be considered an exorcist. Right. There is that role formed, you know? Yeah, I, w- I would equate that with, you know, uh, demonology. Any exorcist must be a demonologist, even if not, you know, connoted as such. But uh, not every demonologist, like myself, not every demonologist is an exorcist. Yeah. So you you can be an exorcist without being a priest? No. Uh, and elder, well, you tell me, you know, like you about Catholicism in, in yeah. Christian faith and in uh, Catholic faith, and you have to be a priest to perform that uh, that rite of exorcism. And another sacrament. And another religious too that do have exorcisms. Usually, they are performed by either a monk or an I'm 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 yeah I'm my mom or a, ra- a rabbi. So, in most other cultures too, that have some form of exorcism that is used in a spiritualistic sense um, through. Um, of course, of course, the the therapy ther- therapeutic sessions of trying to remove this entity from the person. In most cases, it is performed by a clergy member or somebody that is, of course, ordained or uh, a minister of a certain faith or religion. Yeah, now it's just I, I guess um, my misconception was that you necessarily had to be a priest to be an exorcist. You could be a demonologist or someone knowledgeable about the subject. And possibly try to perform an exorcism, but hearing how you guys explain it, it sounds dangerous if you're not. Yes, I, you know, of course, with the Catholic Church, you know, I had this misunderstanding, and I know Carl's not—he's a layperson, and I'm—I'm I'm clergy. But even before I was a deacon with the United States of Catholic Church, or the Catholic Church in general, because you know, Catholic Church, Catholic means universal church, mm. Catholic means Catholic, universal. So within the universal church, um. Uh, we can perform similar rituals, especially as a deacon, but no, like, uh, you will never see somebody else. You can, of course, people claim that they can do exorcisms on people, 
But usually there is a reason the Catholic Church handles it the way they do is because of the liability of dealing with people. And you, when you deal with people, it's, it's, it, especially when it comes to the natural world, people have psychosis issues, mental disorders. And the Catholic Church does approach that and looks at that and looks at the natural before they jump to the cases of this could be preternatural. And that is why a lot of priests handle it. There are people out there, unfortunately, that will say that they're an exorcist and have no uh, connection to clergy uh, or not being clergy themselves. And it's really hard to swallow that because um, I've done this for 15 years. This man's been doing this for 47 years. And it takes a lot of time within the realms of demonology to study that in itself. Now, being an exorcist, there's a lot. It's not like once I become a priest, like I said, I get my exorcism badge. I can start performing exorcisms. You know, it, there's more, many more years of training within that. And a lot of exorcists are actually very well um, adequated with the field of psychology, too. Some of the leading exorcists in the church are PhDs in psychology. So there's so much involved with being an exorcist. It's just not like you can go out there and start performing exorcisms on people. Yeah. Now, um, something that this episode will be a precursor to uh, our episode uh, on demons uh, that we're going to do. And um, one thing that I always try to strike amongst people, now, I don't know if you listen to our Ouija board episode or not, um, but I, I stress highly that it's not something to be played with. It, I know it's essentially a toy, but um, I stress heavily that this is not is not meant to be played with, and, and it's not that the fact that I make it is it's the Ouija board, it's the act of doing it that always seems to invite the worst of the worst into your home. Um, not I haven't had any, my personal experience per se with one to say that I invited something because I know better. Um, but uh, I would say what is like I guess times that you've been around one or someone's actually had a problem with one, they used it and they basically brought something horrible into their home. I have a short answer on this. Carl can actually define this answer a little bit better for you. Well, I will, like, maybe. <laughs> I, I, I will, I will not use it, but I do not believe it could, uh, foundingly create evil in your life. I, I believe it in the same context as a hammer. A hammer can bang a nail, but it can also bang somebody's skull. And mm-hmm. I hate to say it in that terminology. Well, um, you but just it's, did. it's the intent of this. So, I've, I've only dealt with one case where the Ouija board was a piece of the puzzle, not the re- precursor of the reason it happened. I don't use it because I think it is a toy. I think it's a plastic, uh, plastic piece, uh, or cardboard. Breastwood. Um, that a veneer of paper and yeah. Swag. So I don't use it because I put no weight into it. I think that communication can happen from it, but there is enough science to prove that a lot of it is done by the mind or through vibrational aspects of your hands um, and you're not realizing that you're doing it. There's scientists that have put people in a room and put camcorders on them and seen people moving this without their knowledge and it was their body. So I look at these things in the natural sense uh, and of course my caseload, I've done over 400 plus cases in 15 years. If one case was only the reason, possible reason Ouija board was involved, uh, I'm a statistical person that tells me that the Ouija board is not as much as people say it to be, and I know this man tends to use it. So I'll leave the fo- I'll leave the floor to him on okay. Ouija boards. Ouija boards don't intimidate me. I I played with one experimentally. I just don't uh, give any credence to them. 
um, you know, one time out of how, however many uses you might tap into something. But as James was saying, I believe it's actually the impulses through our fingers that do it, uh, even on a subconscious level. Uh, there was an episode of the, the series on uh, the Travel Channel. It was originally on TLC, um, A Haunting. And the title of the episode was Dangerous Games. And it focuses upon three teenagers, three adolescents, who start playing with the Ouija board. And they get into all kinds of mayhem and trouble and on. It was actually a story about me and, and my brother and sister. So, And they had actors portraying us. But we were... My sister was 13 and 14. I was 15 and 16 at the time. So believing in it and more things, you know, like would happen back then. You know, we were adolescents. We generated a certain level of energy then. And uh, it actually created some poltergeist activity, I believe, now. But I don't have a strong opinion on the spirit board. They've never really bothered me. And uh, they don't bother me at all now. Of course, somebody could get into trouble with it. I read a story about how... Uh, some subjects were at a party. They were playing with the Ouija board. And the way they were done with their session, they noticed spots of blood underneath the table on the carpet. Well, then it turned out that this story had been fabricated anyways, just made up. So, you know, it's like, even, <laughs> so I take it even less seriously. I just, I don't advocate them, nor do I crusade against them. I, I suppose this might cost me my demonologist badge, but, you know, they're just, uh, something to which I am ambivalent, except uh, to demonstrate them as a tool of divination how people have used them. You know, they're just, uh, they're not empowered that much. I can conceive that some people would get into trouble with them if you start relying on them and start trusting the answers you may get and giving them credence. Now, I wouldn't play a lottery ticket because uh, Ouija board uh, told me to. Or would I? No. No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just... Uh, I don't think they're dangerous. I think they have potential to be. As James was saying, it is dependent upon how they are used and who is using them. Someone who is highly susceptible and given to suggestion has had spiritual or even uh, metaphysical problems should stay away from it. Yeah. But, and if somebody has experienced what they consider to be a demonic haunt, yeah, probably not have a Ouija board in the home. <laughs> Other people we know have Ouija boards as part of the decor. They got them strung all around. It doesn't seem to be problematic at all. Yeah, I'm good friends with. Uh, I'm assuming you are too, about uh, Rob Merch, uh, traveling board, <laughs> traveling board, talking the talking board society. Talking, board. And you know, there's so much history on it. You know, before, of course, 1973, the Exorcist. It wasn't, oh, yeah. well, it wasn't perceived to be evil. It, it, that, that certainly hyped up the notoriety yeah. of the Ouija uh, board, the spirit yeah. board. And before that, in the spiritualistic movement, even though uh, really uh, applauded on a lot of uh, fraud and hoaxes, uh, which can can be found, and it's truthful, on that a lot of spiritualistic movement was uh, uh, fraudulent. Um, there was no uh, courses of evil back then based on that board either. It was a means to talk to loved ones talk to loved ones, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's where it gets ill-advised and it's mm -hmm. sad, you know, yeah. when you feel your your a loved one is coming through the Ouija board because it, I feel it certainly is not, no, me you know, because why would they communicate, communicate with that? There'd be other ways they couldn't. Yeah. They wanted to give you a sign. And, and it's just kind of sad, even if it's comforting, because I feel it's delusional, you know? If, uh, because suppose you feel you're talking to a deceased relative, your mother or something, and, uh, and then you start getting bad messages. Oh, like something's, you know, blocking my mother from coming through now. 
oh, you know, this is preying on my, my deceased loved one. So you get into trouble with that. It gets complex. I just do not happen to take them very seriously because mm. I don't sleep with one under my pillow. <laughs> I hope I haven't checked like that. I don't know what put one under there. I think I'm okay with that, though. Now, I'm you not... I'm going to say I'm not a paranormal investigator myself, though I've uh, tried it a couple of times, but um, there's still more, I guess, lessons and equipment that I need to get before I can actually start doing it. Um, but we are – go ahead, Carl. I was just going to say I could see where somebody could give a, a cogent argument against using the Ouija board. Yeah. Well, I wanted to write a paper on why you should not use the Ouija board. I could probably do it. It's just not a conviction of mine at this point. Mm-hmm. Sorry, continue what you were saying. Oh, yeah, uh, best paranormal investigating. Now, what we plan to do for the Halloween episode uh, is a two part thing. Um, I think we, we actually decided trying to do something of almost a Facebook Live a paranormal investigating our, this house that we live in. Um, this house that we live in is, it's old. It probably was built around the 50s, I believe, um, if not longer before that. I think I spoke to the neighbor. She said it's pretty old. Um, but only one person so far have we know for sure has died here, which is her grandfather, Megan's. Um, but as her being potentially a psychic medium, uh, she, according to other psychics she's talked to, she has 47 spirits that have uh, tried or at least around her at all times, uh, which makes every place we've lived in haunted. Uh, and we usually catch... Possibly in this episode, we always catch EVPs in our uh, episodes uh, through our microphones here. Um, I would say I was going to ask, uh, what is probably some of the best equipment that you've used in paranormal investigating? Uh, to, to be honest with you, and I'm not going to sugarcoat this, I I know I'm not like a scientist, but I understand a lot of the applications of why these tools are used in Unfortunately, well, you use them professionally. So. Well, I was his tech manager uh, with Beyond the Veil Paranormal 10 years ago. That's how Carl and I kind of sort of was introduced to each other in some form or fashion. But um, people don't tend to realize, like, with sweeping of radios, like how the ionosphere bounces back radio waves, how EMF and static electricity is a common phenomenon. You know, it happens pretty regularly. Um, temperature changes create static electricity buildup. Um, EMF, you know, we, we have gravitational forces, you know, we have, um, everything that creates a, a natural EMF at every single point of time. Yeah, EMF means, you know, electric magnetic fields. fields. So we have magnetic poles. So we always have a flow of EMF. So when you're using these devices, there are a lot of times and I really truly believe that there are a lot of false positives because of these natural things. Um, a lot of people that investigate don't turn off the circuit breakers. They don't check the airstream. So a lot of these devices, and I hate to say it, not the bad mouth anybody, a lot of these devices are entertainment flashy lights. So they're impervious for people to like them because unfortunately they have a lot of lights and it sounds, seems cool. Same thing with SLS. I've had some nifty things. But there's a reason Microsoft doesn't develop the connect anymore. So a lot of these equipments are used for entertainment purpose for people that are interested in maybe talking and communicating or having an attempt to communicate to something. My always favorite part of investigating, of course, was EVPs, electronic voice phenomenon. And one of the things that can still be in some form or fashion 
uh, influenced by natural occurrence. Radio waves um, do travel in the air. There's ability for the digital recorder to intercept this radio wave or this signal and pick it up, even though you can't hear it audibly. So these, there's these possibilities, but I would say, um, and I still use one to this day, time to time. I, I do have a digital recorder, but I love old analog. I'm a big uh, yeah. supporter of tape recorders. Me yeah. too. Keith, Keith and Carl, his brother Keith, and Carl still tends to use one as well. Um, so I would say tape recorder is my favorite because um, it's hard to uh, separate from the fact that, okay, I just caught something. Um, and sometimes for people that bought it on the tape recorder, they hear it audibly. Um, analog just picks up. The audio. Yeah. But you got digital. Yeah, they're convenient, of course, and they store more. And the tape won't break. Yeah. But, you know, they're going to pick up like a receiver, too. So you have to be more stringent about your analysis. Yes, definitely. So it's hard to say which equipment is my favorite beside the tape recorder. I, t- I tend to think um, we are the best tool, but we also, as a human, we are the worst tool because um, we can we have intuition. But at the same time, token, we and also are patient. We also have imagination yeah. and suggestion. Mm. And I'm concurring with James about my favorite tool would be the audio recorder, especially the old fashioned analog, which simply records. That is probably the most irrefutable piece of evidence mm-hmm. you can get or sample of evidence would be these voices, usually human voice and sounds that we record that are extraneous and seem disembodied, especially if you are the person who's recording because you know it's genuine. Now, you may debate what the source is. You could say, oh, those are demons posing as deceased people, or it's something on a certain level that maybe it's our subconscious is able to project that. But the fact is, we do get disembodied voices. Mm -hmm. My brother Keith will not converse with the spirits anymore. He feels it's non-scriptural and nonsensical to Mm -hmm. to try and talk to the spirits. But it is amazing that we can actually get message limited. They don't seem to converse that much. But you can get messages. Sometimes the complete syntax, the sentence, will be produced on these recordings. I don't know how it works. I don't know how that happens. We assume it's some form of spirit communicating with us. Something that's being broad. They can actually interact with us, you know, intelligible. So that's amazing. It's amazing that you can actually record a voice with no body attached to it. Mm-hmm. It's a complete mystery. It's fascinating. I just don't come to conclusions about it, but yeah. So that's to me again, like James said, the most valuable tool. Awesome. Uh, that and, and dowsing rods are great. <laughs> no, they're just entertaining, really. Oh, <laughs> it can be amazing too. Yeah, dowsing rods. Are those like the sticks that you hold with your fingers, and they they I guess they pull energy yeah. in that direction. Also, probably more accurately called divining rods or ah. witching. Yeah, auto witching. Yeah. Oh, I, they're fun because I don't know how they work. They're probably uh, one step removed from the Ouija board, the spirit boards. But it's the two sticks. They they can be wood or more commonly metal shafts. And they will move and answer questions when you're holding them. They can be manipulated to a degree, but mm-hmm. uh, they come out with some amazing things. I don't know how that works. Well, I, I kind of, I don't want to say I know how it works, but when we can manipulate them to a degree. Well, also when they were, of course, back to magnetic poles and the current of water, um, in the same retrospect, you know, water witching, which was the early use of dowsing rods or wire rod at one point in time, the wire rod or the divination rods or dowsing rods were used to find bodies of water. Um, so because of how magnetic 
forces work. And of course, with the currents of water, it creates a magnetic pull. Um, so of course, dowling rods would shift towards that mag- magnetic pull and direct you toward it. But what most people don't realize when you're using dowling rods, especially at a location, there's a good chance of water under you. So there's, there's always that false positive ability too. But in some form and fashion, like Carl says, if you get an intelligent response from it, like, and, and it's repetitive, where do, that's, but that you can't. So there's too many people that investigate that jump to the conclusion right away. And it's hard to do that because when you jump to a conclusion, when there's something that you don't know, you know, the paranormal field is a pseudoscience. It's not respected in the scientific field. It is considered pseudoscience. So when you come up with a conclusion, you're basically saying, yes, this is a ghost talking to us. And, and in fact, it could not be. Mm. Yeah, we just don't know where we're getting these answers from. Yeah. It's still interesting. Some people will contend that when you get a voice or any sign from the spirit world, but especially when you get a voice in a recording, that is actually an inhuman because human spirits are impossible. They don't, uh, they don't accede to scripture. They don't, uh, they're not compatible with biblical scripture. And, uh, so it has to be a demon. Eliminate all the other possibilities. It has to be a demon. I don't know. I know we get these voices. Some of them sound like people we once knew. Others are just, uh, new voices. But, uh, that should be looked into more. It's probably the most fascinating field of, uh, paranormal research, I think, is, is actually getting these discarnate personalities. Yeah. Now, the EVPs we've caught so far in our episodes without even trying or even asking uh, yeah. to talk. The incidental yeah. ones are fascinating. Yeah. Uh, one sounded like a woman saying, I want her. Hmm. Um, another sounded like something Native Americans speak, like very, uh, it had that, mm-hmm. that tone. Uh, and another was basically just a growl. Hmm. Yeah. Things we have heard audibly, like what you're. Everything you're describing is something I've heard with my own ears. Mm-hmm. Just and call on recorder, too. Sometimes they're recorded, sometimes they're captured. That, the advantage of that is you're not saying that you heard this. You can play it back. Yeah. Most people won't believe that you actually recorded that, you know, in an empty room. But, uh, you know, we know it's genuine. Yeah, definitely. So it's interesting, especially when, you know, especially, of course, Megan is, uh, you know, Claire Santa, Claire Audit, Claire Wendt, or whatever she, you know, if you said psychic medium, you know, she, we tend to believe that people have these abilities, they, they can see, so they're, they have that attraction to what we would maybe call a ghost or spirit. And there is that ability, if she has a sense, the sixth sense, more, most people would call it, that, you know, of course, she's more open. And they're attracted to her like a beacon of light. So there's a possibility if, if she is this conduit that you could have activity because of that. You know, so you could be catching random things, a random conversation. So it's, 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 I would say plausible, but you know, it's hard. But if, if you got it and you're just talking about a subject, it's pretty interesting. Like there's times where people have said, um, we're, we're on the show. Well, of course, you don't know how much of a legitimate, a legitimate aspect of it is or technical. Um, but or Carl I or or I, I've been on solo or he's been on solo or other people that are demonologists like Ralph Sarcher, Keith Johnson, all these respectable individuals that been on a show and there's technical difficulties on the show like there's never been done before. And some would equate that because we're on talking about demons, the demons are affecting the show. Oh that you mean like when the battery fails, yeah, you know, yeah. the sound check is just not working and the camera is cuts off. 
Yeah. That's nice to jump to conclusions. It's kind of fun. I have noticed that during the context of the paranormal investigation, batteries tend to go yeah, yeah. more. But then again, you're overusing them and you might be in a cold, a chilly environment. Yeah. There are other factors, but yeah, yeah batteries do tend to die off quickly. I can't explain it. Yeah. Well, if there's anybody I don't have to warn, I think it's you guys, uh, most people that we've done uh, photo, uh, interviews with through Zoom and stuff like that, I've had to tell them ahead of time, disclaimer, if anything comes from my side over to your side, uh, just a forewarning that it could happen. And it's actually happened twice already on two different other interviews that we've done. But you guys are more than capable of <laughs> handling whatever comes your way. So, so yeah. we hope so, yeah. I got a cat. I got a cat. He's, he's pretty badass. <laughs> Yeah, he's a dangerous guy. Yeah. He likes to act like he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With Megan's situation, um, the so for uh, the foremost that we've uh, figured out is that I, we classified her as a sensitive in the beginning because she didn't know necessarily what she was, but she kind of closed herself off to the whole paranormal thing altogether simply because she was afraid of it. So over time, we figured out that there had been five main spirits, at least the ones that made themselves most known. They've been following her around since she was a kid. Uh, two little kids. If you, if, if you, I don't know if you go with the theory that, you know, kids, there's such thing as kid spirits or, or demons in disguise. Yeah, that's that possibility. But so far, two children, a teenage girl around 14 or 15. And we want to say she's from the colonial times just because my wife's actually seen her. And she's in that kind of dress, like a, a nightgown from that period of time. Um, an old man. And I want to say around his 60s, maybe older. He doesn't really cause much problems. He just kind of shuffles around the room. I can hear him grunt every now and then. And then there's a man around his 40s. I want to say late 30s, 40s. He's the a-hole. He's the one that's caused the most problems. And I believe at one time I asked to projected and uh, got rid of him somehow. Now, astral projection, I don't know where you guys stand on that or not, but I've done it twice by accident, not by wanting. And the reason I know I did it is a sense of seeing myself sleep, but also being somewhat awake at the same time is the best way I can describe the sensation. I, I, I do have some form of belief into it. I definitely don't know if it is something that uh, neurologically we do and we are able to see ourselves out of body, um, some perception of like a dreamlike state. But I do, and I think Carl has had a similar situation with a loved one where I was in a situation where um, I was doing the case and I was working with this medium that uh, tends to believe that she can actually project and does so to get on the metaphysical realm to deal with these things to help externally cleanse this house. And um, which is fascinating to me is she was in that room doing this. And I, of course, I'm pacing around the house just to make sure, you know, because I, I do believe that if you are in a truly dark house, that that, that vibrance of that energy or that, that darkness does linger. You can feel it. Uh, of course, it's like if you go to work every day and you go into a negative environment, you feel that. You don't want to be there. So in that same retrospect, um, I felt that. And when she was in that astral projection state, I felt like she was in that room. I felt like that her presence was there. And I don't believe I have any ability, uh, so to say. And I definitely felt her in that room. I felt her comfort. I felt, and I felt the atmospheric change as well. Um, like that darkness and that shred of that, that 
location I was in started to dissipate when she was in that state. So I've never actually projected because I've always said to myself, and it's in the same situation, this is nothing against you. I don't bring work home with me and I'm not going to investigate in my house and I'm not going to want to leave my body purposely, even attempt something like that. Because I think once you leave your body purposely, there is the ability for something to hijack and seep in. I like the way you put that hijack. And uh, it's a, a famous movie is actually based on that. It's called Insidious. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, well, I've, I've had some interesting experiences with uh, willful ast- astral projection, mm-hmm. as James said, with a loved one, para partner, and I experimented with that. And it was uh, very interesting. Uh, of course, we are still living while we do this. Could the soul exist if it broke loose? I don't know, like a tethered balloon mm-hmm. or something. But yeah, we had some couple of amazing experiences with that. So I believe it, it might be called mind projection too, or remote viewing. But we were able to successfully do that. I just can't harness it. I can't do it at will. It takes a real relaxed state. You have to be focused upon what you're doing upon the experiment. It's, it's hard for me not to let my thoughts wander. But mm. yeah, it, I think what's uh, intrinsic to this is that you have a belief that it can happen. If, you have, if it is your conviction you can ask to project, probably you can. It just worked for her and me. And it has worked for others. Yeah. James and I haven't tried it yet. No, I, I probably would never will either. It's not, it's not, it's not something I wish to try. You know, I try imagining like going out to your window and hovering Dude, over your driveway. My mind is a squirrel. As soon as I try to attempt to do something like meditation or anything like that to get to my inner zen, do I feel, I feel like, Ooh, what's that? What's this? Like, I just not, like my mind's a mile. Well, that also promotes your so, creativity. Yeah, it does. It does. It. So I could, I, even if I attempted to, I do believe that it would not be successful for me. But that's also my belief. So I'm with that you. Isaac, you and I can do it, Isaac. We, we can. We can ask for it. He's observed about it. Hmm. Let me. Uh, let me tell you the story because maybe uh, it, I like it. Yeah, I like to hear it. Yeah, it's not. It's like I did it on purpose. It's almost a part parts paralyzed or paralysis, 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 paralysis. Par- par- Paralysis. 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 We'll go with paralysis. How about that? Yeah, sleep paralysis. Uh, it's part sleep paralysis, part uh, something else. But I started experiencing sleep paralysis a lot when I was younger, uh-huh. uh, when I started dating Megan in the beginning, because I worked overnight. And there are times I would go sleep at night, wake up all night and stay the day. So I really messed up my sleep schedule a lot. So I started experiencing a lot through that. At least so that's my assumption. But uh, it has happened, the case anyway, about, I would say, three, four years ago. Maybe longer. It was way before my son was born. So probably about five or six. Um, and it's in this house, mind you. And it was in our bedroom. And I was sleeping on my side like I always do. And I, I basically woke up, my eyes open, but I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. I could I could look around. I know I was awake, but my body was frozen. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a hand was in my chest trying mm-hmm. to pull me out. And I was so furious and angry that I couldn't do anything. I was powerless to do anything. And that rage literally pushed myself out of myself. So I was standing on the opposite side of the bed on Megan's side, staring at myself on my, well, my back anyway, and then staring at who it was. And I could, I couldn't see them. It was like they were translucent. They were invisible, but I could see almost the outline of them. But what was weird is that I could also see, I guess, feel the expression on his face was, holy crap. Like he jumped out uh, like that. Like he was like surprised that I did that and ran around the bed trying to escape where I ran up to him. In amount of rage, and I picked him up by his throat, and I started choking him. 
uh, if it was a person, I probably broke their neck, the amount of pressure I put on it. That's how strong I had it. And I kept squeezing and I could feel hands on my forearms where he was, was, I guess, like, you know, say, hey, let me go. But and then I said, I got him. But what it didn't come out of my mouth in my aspiration form. It came out of my physical body that was all off, which sounded weird. Like it was an echo of myself. Like mm-hmm. I got him, but it was off in the distance in the back from my actual body. And then he just disappeared out of my hands. And I felt myself like falling sideways and then back into my body. And I woke up and I looked around the room and like maybe less than like three seconds time has lapsed. But when I was in the astral projection world and then back in the physical world, the lighting in the room was exactly the same. There was no difference from dark to light. It was exactly like I just moved from that point to this point. Mm. That's, that's interesting. I, um, I've, sure heard, I've heard similar situation, and not to de- denote the situation at all, but uh, a lot of times with sleep paralysis, um, a lot of those situations can occur. Um, you, like you said, your sleep pattern was messed up. And for a lot of people that have this issue, because this is a, a current issue that we tend to deal with a lot, people that believe that they're dealing with something demonic or some sort of paranormal phenomenon, and sleep paralysis could be a, a cause of an issue, but most of the times it is a natural thing. And the reason how we approach that is, and of course, this is something you could do, maybe do it just in case this ever happens to you again to see the difference. Um, even though you feel like it's a reality, it could be like a dreamlike state. So what we tell people that are dealing with that phenomenon very much so is we tell them to wear something on their wrist, like a bracelet or a watch. And most of the time, You'll phys- you know, if you are in a dreamlike state, you actually won't see that watch or bracelet on your wrist because that won't be interpreted within the dreams. If it's, you know, so if you're in a dreamlike state, that will be there. If, if it's there, you know, something's kind of at play. Usually in a dreamlike state, something like an accessory won't, uh, won't be with you. Oh, I, I see. Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. Isaac, uh, now if I astral project, do I have to worry that I'm going to run into you because you seem like a, you know, pretty badass when you're disembodied? <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. Now I know it was in self defense, but you know, wow. Oh, but I do. I believe you had that genuine experience. You confronted another entity. That is, in my opinion, given it was so cogent and so vivid what you experienced. I don't put that down to dreaming. I just think you really did have, we can't know in the final analysis, but I think you had a genuine experience out of body when that mm-hmm. happened. And I definitely think it's possible too, yeah. Yeah. Is this fine? Yeah, like, yes, it is. Yeah, like I said, I find it very interesting to have and I'm willing to experiment with it again. Mm-hmm. Let uh, me know when you're doing it. Perhaps we'll meet each yeah, other. Maybe you'll, <laughs> yeah. Well, some people do say that they, um, and of course, I don't know how uh, true it is because, of course, I wasn't kind of part of the national projection party or whatever or but I, I i have heard of people that say they do meet in that form like him and his loved one um that they meet in this national projection state and they can see each other in that form and talk to each other in that form so you know people do claim that and you know it's not for me to say no that can't happen because to them that's their reality if they believe that it occurred and it did occur you know it's not like I was part of that situation. No, it's interesting. So you think it's possible, but you know, you have not experienced I'm it. Not. You, you know? So I'm always going to, of course, have that question in my head. Is it possible? But I'm never going to jump well, off I think that we cliff. Because 
especially with the line of work we do, I definitely believe if we leave ourselves open, I think that there are more possibilities of us being affected because of the work we do. Well, my experimenting partner, my loved one, we tried that experiment. I was over visiting some people who are mystical bent too. She has a haunted house. She didn't, she wouldn't tell me what time she was going to do it or what, you know, anything about it, except she was going to try and she just let me know if you experienced anything. So I'm trying not to second guess her. You know, I'm thinking she's going to try and <laughs> mental project. What would she be doing? I put that out of my head. What would she most likely be doing? So if I feel something I do, then it was um, 10 minutes after 11 a.m. And I was over at our friend's house. And I saw her, in more than my mind's eye, I saw her stepping, oozing through like osmosis, oozing through the, the surround of the fireplace, coming through, and she was holding a candle. And believe me, I thought, like, it's going to be way off, but I, why, you know, I'll just tell her what I felt. I'll tell her honestly. No, at 10 minutes after 11, which I thought she'd want like be doing at noontime or something, you know, or later in the day. 10 minutes after 11, while I was visiting our friends, she wasn't there. She was uh, projecting herself into the house I was at, and she was using a candle to do it. So I was mm-hmm. like, ooh, that, and I felt her... You know, everybody has an own, you know, their own energy. You get a certain, like, I feel a vibration from James because mm-hmm. I'm accustomed to him. But I've grown accustomed to your face. To you. But uh, uh, I, I know her energy. There's a certain feel I get with her. You know, it's it's uh, something bioelectric, I'm sure. And uh, in its essence. And that's what I felt. I felt her. Uh, uniquely her. And I just didn't know she was doing that. Then. She said, just, you know. Tell me everything you experienced. But this was right then. And we've had other instances like that. There seemed to be too much to be coincidence. So I'm on with you about that astral. I'll reinforce it. I think it's genuine. You know, is it really the soul that temporarily is untethered from the body? Dunno, the big D U N N O. A lot of paranormal investigation and researchers, the big dunno. But it's interesting. And yeah, we did something. We connected at some level. It's nothing, nothing I ever really practiced. It's just something I did by accident, um, and nor have I done it ever since then. Uh, uh, but I, I don't know. My brother tried doing it a couple of times. He said it's almost like you're trying to pull yourself out of yourself and mm. almost like extreme lethargicness to him trying to do so. So he's never really ever tried because it took so much effort to do it. But um, that's his, that was his case. I don't know if it was like trying to like, get to a relaxed immediate not, kind of state or it's not because you've got to relax yourself and make an effort at the same time. Yeah. Of course, you, know, you do feel like it. You feel like you want to reach in and say, come out of there, float for a while. And, and uh, there's a term uh, where there's a, there's a form of a way of some would call it. And it's a form of scrying, but even though you're not necessarily actually projecting, but uh, there is a form called psychomantium, psychomantium. Um, where it is a form of you actually kind of focusing on something and, in some form projecting. So a psychomantium is a, a thing people do as well to try to focus and project. Yeah. Well, ever since that one episode, uh, he is no longer came into our room. Well, um, other coming around the house and so forth like that. I mean, I haven't really heard anything from him, but ever since Megan has been opening herself up to her psychic abilities, it's been bringing more and more uh, different cases. One case um, that I wanted to bring to you guys, something we haven't talked about in the show yet. Um, Not that I saved it for this, but it's just something we haven't brought up because it's recent. My son, uh, 
my wife believes he might have an ability or a gift of somewhat uh, being a medium, but not me per se, because some of her bloodline only seems to go for females. Her mother, her grandmother have always seemed to have that ability of, you know, psychicness and mediumness, however you want to describe it. But I've only seen it happen on her side with the, through the female side. So I don't know if my son will be capable of getting it. Anyway, uh, recently, as of like last week, he was scared of something in our den. And this is at nighttime. My wife, my son has a weird sleep schedule. He's been staying up like to two to three o'clock in the morning sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, he described what he was scared of to my wife as something that stomps. And my wife said, well, what does it look like? And he did a monster face. He went, ah, huh. right. Which could be interpreted as possible demon or at least a uh, dark entity of some kind. Yeah. The way he described it as stomping and a monster. Now, I went over to the area where he pointed out and I felt around because I'm, you know, ghosts, you can try to feel a cold spot or something. But what's strange is I felt a hot spot, almost like when you put your ha- hand to the ceiling during the summertime and you can feel the heat coming from the roof in this one corner. There's no heaters in the house. It's the summertime. We had the AC running, everything like that. But my hand in that area felt warm, like I was touching, like I said, like the heat you would feel from the roof. Mm-hmm. house but only in that corner uh so cold spots are the general conception of what people think would occur when uh manifestation would happen but hot spots tend to ha- occur too because it's um think about it it's like i said static electricity build up you know yep. people tend to use REM pods and stuff like that um because they believe in the idea that if something enters into the atmosphere it will create the static lectures to build up in this change in temperature. So as far as how old is your child? Yeah. Four. Four. So I would tend to say at a young age like that, and not to, to denote, but this is because I dealt with children and um, you know, I know how the imagination can come into play. It also adult, being an adolescent as well is that te- sometimes if there is something there, um, the mixture of that and the child's imagination can come into play and intertwine. Yeah. And unfortunately, with a child being four years old, um, and inciting a monster, I, I can't, of course, I'm not there and did not have that situation, but I would always have to lean towards that. It's something of imagination because in reality, um, if it was a demonic entity, a demon would not perceive itself to be of a monster to a child. It would actually perceive itself to be something of a loving nature. You mean it present itself so it's deceptive. Deceptive. Yeah. It wouldn't come off as this monst- monstrous entity. Um, so I always tend to believe when I hear that, that it was uh, an intertwining of imagination and a possibility of something. I just know where one leaves off, the other one begins, yeah. isn't it? So... It's, it's tough at four years old, man, because, um, uh, unfortunately, um, I technically believe everybody has abilities, um, because one of the things, the oldest studies of, of sensitives, um, and before, of course, we had clear engine, clear audio, clear sentient, clear buoyant, psychic medium, um, there was the idea that the pineal gland, which is considered the third eye, um, of course, at a young age is not fully developed. Now we know that it is still an unknown gland, but to a degree, we understand that it releases melatonin. 
which helps with sleeping. But a lot of times that people see things, they're in a very relaxed state. They put themselves in a relaxed state. And that's, that is when they perceive something to be there. So the, the idea of the third eye has been around for a long time and everybody has the pineal gland. It's a standard gland, but at a young age, that gland's not fully developed. So that perception is a little bit more open, but that imagination is still there. So it could have been a mixture of both, to be honest with you, because, um, children's, uh, you know, will jump to that. Maybe it was a scary man and that it's kind of what he was able to perceive. I don't know. I, I wasn't him. I wasn't in his mind. And of course you had the hot spot, which is intriguing, but I also always like to lean to, and I think it's a possible conclusion, not conclusion. Because everybody jumps to ghosts and demons, but I do believe parapsychology is a very interesting field too with PK and TK activity, psychokinetic activity. And as a kid, there, I believe there's a possibility of if a kid is able to put enough perception into something, maybe it is their mind creating this force, this generation. Um, so it, th- there's many different angles to look at. That's good. I was just making sure. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to know what's real and what's not real in this. You know, like, you gotta, you know, like what is uh, audio hallucination? What is uh, imagination? Mm-hmm. What is wishful thinking? What is genuine? And what's been created? What's been synthesized mm-hmm. as something that acts in an energy displacement that pre- behaves like a spirit? So there's a lot to encounter. Always more questions than answers. Yeah. Unfortunately. Which is why we have your show. You know, yeah. Talk about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I like to speculate a lot and theorize because I only have one thought that might lead to another and another connects to another for a certain subject. And then I come back to that one because something about that subject related to that one. And I, I go around the network into a rabbit hole sometimes. But oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting. And that's what's fun. The draw about the paranormal, paranormal research and even demonology. There's always room for speculation. We can't answer most of the questions. We can address them and we can talk about them. Yeah. We can discuss. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to um put a reality something to something that most most people physically can't see or interpret. You know, so it's hard. You know, we we have people that can see these things, but nine out of ten people can't. So if nine out of ten people can't see something, you know we're always going to wonder. We're always going to wonder how that one person sees it. Is it is it a, a, an act of imagination? And sometimes it's not. And most of the times it is, actually, unfortunately. But in that reality, is that's why the paranormal is such an intriguing field because there's so much exploration, there's so much unknown. And of course, the paranormal umbrella um, jumps into cryptids, jumps into ufology, yeah. which are things that. Carl and I are in, uh, interested in as well. And of course, um, bringing on, brought on a case for, uh, demonic possession. I actually gave it to move on because I don't think it had anything to deal with the realms of spirits, ghosts, demons. I gave it because I believe that this person maybe, truthfully, honestly, was abducted by something that we also don't understand to the full extent. Oh, great. Yeah, uh, I guess I listened to my one of my other questions. What's like uh, about the most intense, uh, I guess, case that you guys investigated that you might have thought you were over your guys' heads? Well, it'd be, uh, before we teamed up, mm. we have yet to get on our uh, 
over the top case where we're wondering, should we be here? Can we handle this? I'm sure we will be in a situation where we, you know, got our own propensities, uh, but we'll, we'll see it through anyway, to the best of our abilities. I had a case many years ago, well, several that were, you know, pretty hair raising. Um, now I was originally involved in the Perron case in Harrisville, Rhode Island, and 40 years later became the subject of the movie The Conjuring. And uh, we never felt we were, even though we were quite young, we never felt we were in over our heads and we couldn't handle this as a scientific investigation. But uh, something that happened a few years after that uh, was my second residential case, and that turned out to be a case of full-blown demonic possession. I still think that was demonic possession. Now, the, there were myriad psychological ramifications. I mean, you could do a whole study on this case just from a psychological viewpoint. But that was, oh, things that were happening in that. I wondered, could I stay here? I, I just want to get back out to my car. I don't want to be here. I don't feel I belong. What can I do to help these people? Yet I stuck with it because I knew if I left, if I gave in to my own apprehension and just got out of there, because it was like minute to minute, you didn't know what was going to happen. The subject was a 14-year-old boy under a fit of demonic possession. But if I left, how could I go back to something like that? Mm -hmm. I, I, I might leave again. I just might feel queasy, might not feel right, might depart, leave the scene. But I stuck with it, and I'm glad I did. We were actually able to help these people mm -hmm. and the subject. But that was, oh, my word, the things we saw. You see about objects flying around the room, propelled by an invisible force? This boy doing physical contortions, which should have been impossible for him. You know, just seeing freaking his body being tossed around. Uh, as well as religious objects, like uh, to turn to see a picture of Jesus, uh, in just the way you're used to seeing it on the table. Turn around, you know, nobody's been to that corner of the room. Turn around a minute later, and it's inverted, it's upside down. That that was probably more freaky than just about anything else I saw. My chair, in which I was seated at the beginning, we were in a semicircle at the beginning of this expulsion, which is a minor form of exorcism. Uh, my chair with me in it moved all the way back across the room, you know, to, to the wall, which didn't startle me because it happened so quickly. I what? Somebody's pulling my chair. Then all of a sudden I'm back against the wall. Uh, the things that happened, the way this boy's face triangulated and contorted, the, the voice, if you will, emitted from his throat. Oh, oh what, what a night. What a, what a two hours. And I had stayed overnight in this house to observe. I was invited by the family. I was all of uh, 21 years old. And, uh, well, at around 1 a.m., uh, I was reclining on a sofa, just nodding off. And this boy's door, his bedroom door opened. I heard him screaming first, like he was being flayed alive. I ran over and fumbled for the wall switch, turned on the overhead light. His bedroom door opened. Out comes his body careening around, like banging against the walls. He's being tossed about. And uh, I stood transfixed. What else could I do? I would stand transfixed now. So he did a backwards flip and landed upright on the sofa, on which I'd been reclining, started to flap his hands, and, you know, this sinister laughter came out, came out of his mouth. And then he jumped at me. Well, I thought I could easily restrain him without injuring him. I was my normal 200 plus pounds. And he just, uh, he just pushed me right back. But then he came to his, he came to himself and he would know, oh, was he panicked crying for his uncle? So that's why we arranged an expulsion again, a casting out of the invasive spirit. And it was successful. Mm. 
I'm not trained clergy by any means. There was clergy present, but I was, uh, I was instrumental in, in this procedure. And uh, my brother was there, my brother Keith. It was not without its comic element, too, because my brother said at one point, this is this boy uh, who was under the fit of possession. He took a vat. And, well, they had a, a pan of holy water, a bowl of holy water. He came and doused me with that. So I was like, oh, and, oh, but, oh it's horrendous and, and interesting and sprawling and, and successful. It, at least it seemed to be successful. He wasn't bothered after that. Hmm. That's so, I must have been heck of case. Oh my word! I I, I have no. I, it's it's a story to tell. I have no documentation at all about this now. And I wasn't there because I wasn't even alive yet. Yeah, you have a good excuse for not yes. being there and filming it all. <laughs> um, my one of my most horrific cases, one of the cases that really uh kind of was a big pendulum shift in my ideologies because. For a long time, I did not believe in demons, and for a long time, I also did not have a good relationship with what people would call God, and I had never necessarily came across something demonic before, and I always, always wondered, could demons exist? And usually, I would get involved in cases, especially early on, and usually would use some form of interview process or some form of uh, way of kind of using specialists like that, such as psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, so on and so on. And this one time, I was actually called by a psychologist onto a case, and that alone was enough to startle me because I called these people in. You know, they're supposed to be of the scientific mind, approach these things in a non-preternatural sense, but I'm being called to come assess a case. So alone in that cell, I was thrown off. Um, I was confused. I was a little bit nervous. I want to say scared, but nervous because what am I getting myself into? I don't believe in this, but there are these, um, avocations of these people saying that they're dealing with something, um, dark, malicious, uh, manipulative. And of course, at since, in times that this person would show traits of possession, being controlled by this very sinister, unseeable force. So, of course, I get to this place, and this is in Salem, Massachusetts, very famously known for its witch trials, of course, um, and the many, many applications of death that occurred there, stoning, uh, hanging, um, things that occurred. And, of course, you have that in mind, so I'm going to Salem, Massachusetts, the witch city. So, of course, that's also, oh, this is interesting. But the craziest thing that ever happened to me, and this has never happened to me before on any case before at this point, um, and it's happened times before, but not many, many times. Uh, 15 years, I've only dealt with five demonic cases, and I think Carl, four and 40-something years or something around that. So really not too many that we would equate or quantify as demonic. Um, but once I got onto that property, drove up onto that property, uh, a chemical reaction most people have called fight or flight kicked yes. on. And my body's telling me, dude, you need to get the hell out of here. This, this, this does not feel right. Um, I was, uh, I was shaking and I wasn't necessarily scared, but my body was reacting to what was ever in uh, that general vicinity. And that alone kind of, uh, shook me through my core. Um, but what really established itself to me to believe it was demonic 
necessarily was, of course, some of the things that Carl experienced, triangulation of the face, the eyes fully dilating black, um, strength beyond, I do believe, adrenaline, where two guys, 300 and something plus pounds, they used to be both former bouncers, holding this a 22 something, 22 year old, um, and being, uh, out wrestled. And this, um, person that I do believe that was afflicted, able to reach me. So a lot of these things occurred. Um, the biggest thing that happened, in my opinion, that was also putting the ice on the gate, icing on the gate was that after it, um, it threw a rift into everybody that was involved. We were all friends, um, that were involved, the psychologist was my friend. And after that, it created a great rift in our friendships. Um, and it really demoralized myself because I lost my friends. But one of the things that I will say that out of that horrific sense, it made my faith and my love for God much stronger. Instead of it pushing me away and scaring me away, um, it actually it induced me to want to do this more, made my faith stronger, and it also actually made me believe in demons. Um, and I would say that would be my most horrific, most eye-opening case because it led me from believing one thing to stepping over that boundary and saying, I do believe this exists. Um, a psychologist was not able to, uh, through the DSM, implore beyond some of the psychological things that were occurring with this person, why these actual th- metaphysical things were occurring, which they were. Things were moving. Um, one of the people were pulled in, uh, almost pulled into this closet by this dark figure that came out of the closet and this person was being pulled in. Um, so these things occur. Eyewitness accounts, multiple people that saw this. People saw the deliverance I did that individual. And unfortunately, my involvement wasn't like Carl's story. It wasn't a happy ending. Um, so, but it was eye-opening, it was scary, and it led me to something that I had never experienced before. Mm. Yeah, I've only ever, my myself, Megan has never had, but uh, my myself only have one experience with a uh, possible demon. Um, we This is when we lived back in Texas in a house in Spring Branch, which that house, trailer, really, but uh, had the most uh, experiences between the both of us. And that house was necessarily, I don't want to say lived on haunted ground, but uh, the house here we know has been haunted for a while, but this house has been blessed over more times than I can think of. Um, but the house in Spring Branch in Texas, uh, the situation was one night I wake up in the middle of the night. It's about, I know it's three o'clock in the morning because I looked at my phone. I saw the time. But for some reason in the room, uh, it was loud. Like the fan blades were almost like coming off a helicopter, like vroom, 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 like really loud. And there was scratching on the walls, like nails, like claws, all. I couldn't pinpoint the exact spot. And what was the, I guess the strangest of most things is that Megan always liked to sleep on my shoulder. When I turned to her to see if she was awake, if she was seeing this, she was twitching in her sleep. Like someone was electrocuting her. Like her head was shooting all different directions. Her body was twitching. I was like, I was freaking out. And I did the only thing that came to mind in the moment is I crossed her forehead like a priest would. And she instantly stopped. But when she did stop, I felt someone staring at me with hatred and heat and anger and like violence. I was like, where is this coming from? And then I look up into the corner of our bedroom. Up in the corner 
which is a black mass. There's a, a corner of the room, which is a heavy shadow. And within that black mass was two uh, red irises, almost like I just <laughs> read uh, someone's pupils were just red staring at me. And I look at my phone. I knew about the whole witching hour. I knew what that meant. And I looked at my phone. I saw 3.59 go boom oh. to 4 o'clock. And then everything in the room was quiet. The scratching was gone. The fan was quiet. And I looked up the corner. The black mass was gone. Wow. There's something like that. Generally, in a, in a malevolent type of font like that, I call it a font of manifestation, there is a, a blackness that comes into the room. The room will darken. Sometimes it's even isolated. You can see it rolling in. That is what has happened at the what's called the Conjuring House in Harrisville, Rhode Island section of Barrowville, Rhode Island. Not that I think that's evil on the level, and it's just kind of disconcerting when you see that come into the room, but I've seen it, multiple, multiple people have reported it. But yeah, something coalesces, turns dark, absorbs the light, blackens out the part of the room. Yeah, that's, that's a little hair-raising. That does, And it's so interesting, that witching hour, once it turns 4 o'clock, the worst of it seems to pass over, have passed over. So there's, there's got to be something to it, that commonality. A lot of people report that between the hour of 3 and 4 a.m. Some people say that might be mocking the Trinity, you know, but, uh, yeah, between 12 and, uh, midnight and 3 a.m., especially that 3 o'clock time, that seems to be bad news. I don't know why, simpatico or whatever associations, but that's, that's the time. You're going to be apprehensive. I think that's the time to be that way. Mm. Yeah, well, what you described does sound real and, and malevolent. Something was in that room. <laughs> and that was only every time that I didn't even think of that. Um, I told Megan about it the next morning, and she was freaked out, obviously. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then she, I told her, I was like, well, can you try it? Maybe telling it to go away? Maybe that might work, right? And yeah. said that I did experience this at my just what she told me is that she told whatever it was i want you gone i want you away i want you out of here and then she felt a cold blast of air hit her and then other from that nothing ever again but um i couldn't say that was it that left but uh as of experiencing anything on that level we haven't since then well there's theory like back to the theory of uh if her, she's had the, that has abilities uh being the conduit of beacon of light there's this theory that if you are in a snake-like state, you are, of course, uh, more susceptible. And in times where uh, I would like to call the word trance uh, or channeling, um, there are forms of where if somebody has abilities and they're accessible, they could get into a trance-like state or a channeling-like uh, state and unknowingly in their sleep-like state bring something in. And maybe because she was so accessible because of she, she was in a sleep-like state, maybe something hitchhiked in for uh, that period of time. And that's what you experienced, that manifestation through her. The eyes, the, the red and the iris. Yeah, um, that's, that's yeah. you add that up, it really does sound demonic. If it's not, I wouldn't know what to call yeah, it. Yeah. Something hostile. Definitely not. Which we equate with demons. Jeez. All right, uh, I guess I don't worry about now. <laughs> well, no, I said equate with it. Okay, the indications. I wouldn't. You know. So we're not saying classified. Classified as. It's got some hints of it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not, not very wholesome. 
You know, sounds like a very uh, startling experience. Definitely. Well, and some Native American legendary that it could be an animal spirit. You know, there's a, a book uh, that chronicled a case the Warrens had called Man is the Wolf, mm. where a man purported to be taken over by the spirit of a wolf. Uh, you know, and then Native, Native American lore has that where an animal presence will come into a human being. I, I don't know if that can work, possibly. Because animals tend to have ghosts. Sometimes they do come back as animal apparitions. I mean, we never get to the bottom of what it really was that you would experience, but it's hair raising. Yeah. I'd remember that. Now, I know you get asked this all the time and probably about any interview you've ever done. <laughs> I will try to answer uniquely for you. No, we won't. Um, or at least of recently, because I know it's, but. Uh, I recently watched a couple of days ago, um, or actually a couple of weeks ago, they a rewatch. I mean, I didn't get. I, I I thought I'd never watched it. Was the episode of Ghost Adventures that you were on, Carl? Oh, that yes. Yeah, well, you went back to the uh, that Conjuring House essentially. I returned to the Conjuring yes, House yeah. in the interval of many years. I went back in there to try and recreate the original investigation. So, what, what can I tell you about that? Yeah, I was that. One thing I always wanted to know when it can, cause I'm not necessarily, I'm a, well, I'm a fan of Ghost Adventures. I've been, I, out of all paranormal shows I ever watched, it was them that I liked the most because they seemed the most realistic to what they were yeah. doing. Like they, with no camera crew, no production team, it was just them and their, their small, I guess they're like cameras in, in every investigation. Right. And that's what I liked about them. Did you find them as genuine when they did their investigations? Well, I'm glad you asked me because I have a definitive answer. Yes, I did. I was not prepared to really like them. I wouldn't have disliked them, but I assumed there was going to be a show. You know, they're going to put on an episode and it would be perfunctory, business-like. No, I genuinely like working with that crew and I found them very genuine. There are mixed reviews about their methods. Some people may not think they're genuine. All I know is in my experience, they were, they were quite genuine in their approach and their method. It was just, it was a good experience. I liked working with Zach and Aaron and Billy and their production crew. And uh, Zach is definitely in charge. You know, he's been at it long enough. And he was very businesslike, cut to the quick, let's get it done. So, you know, without frills. Uh, I like that approach. It was very complimentary to me. And we had some good experiences together. Yeah, it was all genuine. Not, nothing scripted, nothing contrived. That has not been the case on every television show in which I've been involved, but uh, it was. It was good. A good experience. But did you have any questions about the, uh, you know, what actually went on there? Or well, yeah. What what essentially happened to you? Um, I think it's when you guys were doing. You you yeah. and Aaron were set at the table, and you went through some kind of trance. Yeah, I did. That was genuine. And I'll tell you, there's something about talk about suspension of disbelief. I did, you forget if you're involved in that, and we were really doing the procedure. We were really conducting an investigation, endeavoring to recreate the original investigation conducted there by a team in which I was involved uh, as a member of, uh, 46 years before then. So we were, you know, we used the old cassette recorder and an, uh, antiquated EMF detector. So we're using the old stuff. Even our flashlights were old. And, uh, so we, I, at a certain point, being in that atmosphere, now there was a thunderstorm going on. It was all real, too. Pouring rain, thunderstorm. 
if you when you watch that episode, you see flashing in the windows. That's the, the lightning. And uh, I told uh, I told Aaron and Zach and Billy, I said, you know, I feel something I felt here 46 years ago. I feel that the house is talking to me. I feel it's the house that is the haunting, not as, that it's a haunted house. It has a personality to it. It wants to speak through me. Now, I'm not a medium. I felt compelled to say what the house was telling me, to translate, to interpret what the house was saying. And I told them, I said, I wanted to do this 46 years ago, and I want to do it now. I want to know if this house can speak to me and through me. I said, probably I shouldn't. I should be more responsible. I should just leave the room. Of course, Zach said, Carl, please, don't leave. Let it speak, please. The man had tears in his eyes when he was saying this. He, this was no act. I didn't know the cameras were on. I don't, you don't know. Some people forget that. So it's not that I was taken over. I could have gotten up and left that room at any time. Uh, it, you know, the editing makes it appear as though I was contracted. No, I could have gotten up. But I was so curious as to what would happen, if anything. I opened my mind and speak through me. And... Well, and I, most of this I learned when I watched the uh, the filming afterwards. And I'm the house through me seems to be saying, don't go. If anything, if I second guessed it, I would think it would say, leave, get out. But it was saying through me, don't go, don't leave, don't go. I'm speaking to all of us, I guess. Maybe the house wanted company. Mm. So they are fascinated by what I was fascinated by what was happening. And I, I don't know what else to say. It was just, I was enthralled. Then they all left me alone in the room. I said, oh, wow, now that now they go out and do something else. Now I'm alone with this. But I, I sat there for a while, and this blackness or absence of light came into the room. It rolled in. I experienced that 46 years before in that house. I, I think I'm the first one who ever reported that darkness issuing in to the room. And by gum, it did. And I said, I don't know if I even want to tell people because that's what they expect me to say. The blackness came in. But it did. And I reported that. But they were able to capture the room getting knocked that moment that I was in there. Uh, I think it was when Billy was there. And they had a, the camera system set up anyway. The room started to darken. It would do that in intervals. It got noticeably dark. Something black came in there. Something blocking out the light. Oh, it's just, it was just interesting from start to finish. Because they were not people to sit around and just absorb or feel. They were an active crew, the Ghost Adventures team. So I did enjoy working. I'm sure not everybody has had a great experience with them, but I, I thought it was very good, very productive investigation. It wasn't a show. Well, it was documented for the show. They conducted the investigation. And they, they recorded it. We knew something was up when we were doing what's called the introductory or hero shot, where the cast walks in, you know, they approaches the house, and they filmed it from different angles outside with a drone overhead. And uh, as we're walking to the house about the third take, I, I happened to glance up, and in the porch, I saw something black. Well, this is afternoon. I saw something black move in the, uh, in the porch. And Zach says to me, Carl, did you see that? I said, yeah, I thought it was one of your guys with a duffel or something. So I, put, I saw something black move. He said, I don't think anybody's in there. 
So I ran up to the house, ran into the porch. No, nobody close to that porch. So Zach decided to begin the investigation one night earlier, earlier than scheduled. So my brother Keith and I were interviewed about our past experience. I thought that was all it was going to be. And we're at the console, the DVR system set up there. They always have it monitored, see activity in any room at any given time. And all of a sudden we hear Zach say, I want Carl up here now. So, oh, moi. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so we went in and he wanted me to be part of that investigation. And boy, was, things happen. Noises, motions, movement. It was, it was interesting. I would do it again. But uh, yeah, it was to sum it up, it was a good experience. And I thought it was a genuine and productive investigation. They could have faked so much stuff and made it look dramatic if they wanted to. But no, it was all real. I mean, anybody can th- throw a ball across a room and make it look like it was just, you know, a ghost propelled that through. Or you can kick over a chair. You can do so many things right on the spot to contrive evidence. But no, none of that happened. It was all real. Awesome. Again, my experience. Yeah. Uh, I guess when people think about uh, paranormal investigation and ghost hunters, they think of the, I guess, considerably the OGs, which is the Warrens, at least the most famous of um, when you talk about the paranormal investigating world. And funny enough, they don't talk about you and your brother enough, but I always hear the Warrens come up a lot. But you, that one case you did with the Warrens, uh, how was that experience with them? I guess with the same place, obviously, but with the case that you do, I don't know if you did any of the cases with the Warrens. I lectured with the Warrens. They had dinner twice over at my parents' house. So we were well acquainted. Uh, I traveled with them and did lectures for a while. Yeah, you know, maybe three lectures I appeared with them. Uh, initially a good association with Ed and Lorraine Warren. But when we introduced him to that case that became The Conjuring, the premise for The Conjuring, uh, that was at our behest. Actually, we consulted Ed and Lorraine about that case. We did not at any time feel we were outnumbered or in over our heads or inexperienced. We were conducting, to the best of our abilities at the time, in 1973, we were conducting a scientifically-based investigation. The Warrens did not perform an investigation. Theirs was an intercession. So the Warrens would not have been there had we not alerted them to this or informed them about this case, and they volunteered to come over. We felt, oh, what a nice touch to have the noted Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, in, investigating with us, the, the parent family house. Uh, we didn't know they were going to take over at the time and eliminate us. So I was on the phone with Carolyn Perrin, the lady of the house the, in Harrisville. She would call six to 10, 11 times a day because I was interested in what was happening in their house. And she was telling me a blow-by-blow description. She was describing what was happening there. So I said, you may call at any time. I'd love to know what you're experiencing hour to hour, even minute to minute. So uh, I had a good, you know, a good rapport with her. And I was there when the Warriors arrived. Later on, uh, many years later, when the with the advent of the movie The Conjuring, Lorraine Warren denied that any other paranormal investigators were on the scene at that time. But there's photographic evidence and recordings to say we were there. There's a, a noted photograph of myself standing next to Lorraine Warren. I was right there. I you know, showed them around the house. Uh, all right, Carolyn Perrin was calling me, Mrs. Perrin. Suddenly those phone calls ceased, and I did not hear from her. And this was for nearly three weeks, didn't hear from her. 
So uh, our member of a team based at Rhode Island College in Providence, we met and I said, well, we decided the Warrens uh, have taken over this case. Obviously, the parents don't need us anymore. Perhaps the, the, the investigation has become more intense or it's been resolved. But Carolyn called me and she apologized for having been out of touch. She informed me that uh, the Warrens told them, told the parents that uh, we could do the no good and the Warrens couldn't help unless they were the sole investigators, sole paranormalists there, that we were just a bunch of college kids and we could only get in the way. So, the, of course, the parents were convinced of that with the Warrens and their vast experience. So we lost out in that case. The Warrens took over, and it actually ended badly. It was acrimonious the way that the parents and the Warrens broke off. It was not successfully resolved. Oh, a lot of strange things happened, you know, but... Uh, Again, it was an intercession. They were trying to drive out the demon. And that's not what we were after. We wanted to document, help them if we could, try to get to the, the bottom of what was happening there with the house's long history. The house was built in 1736. Carolyn had performed copious research on this house, much as uh, at least Jim Marco Carlson is doing now with that house and the background of the house. So it actually ended, they had a falling out. The Warrens and the parents had a falling out, and it wasn't really resolved. But then I didn't see Andrea Perrin and Roger Perrin until 40 years later. My brother would have saw them more, and I'd been back in that house a couple of times since, but uh, so it was very interesting. Um, I didn't feel, feel the Warrens handled it properly. I think, in my opinion, the Warrens started out very sincere with this case, uh, I think it was a little sensationalized what was happening there, but I do I do think they started out wanting to help the, the parents. They just I disagree with their methodology. You know, they were spiritualists. They weren't being very scientific about it. And that's how I felt, having been personally involved in that case. And it's not that I had a falling out with the Warrens. No, I stayed in touch with them for a while, but I would see them only sporadically after that. I believe they could be sensationalist. I believe they could be very sincere uh, in terms. But knowing the Warrens, you had to like them, I would say. They had their detractors, to be sure. But to see Ed and Lorraine lecture, to get to know them, uh, just a, a wonderful couple to know. There's a scene in The Conjuring, in the movie, that actually has a cameo appearance by the late Mrs. Warren. And it shows them uh, lecturing at, in a college environment. And that's where, in the movie, that's where Carolyn Perrin is, is. She meets the warrant. She approaches them afterwards. That was Victor Wilson and Farrah Varminga portraying the Warrens. That was like watching the Warrens. That's what they were. To see them up there, they were a charming, self-deprecating, uh, funny, intriguing couple. It was just fun to watch the Warrens. I saw many of their lectures, especially in those days in 1973 and 1974. I met them at a lecture in 1972 at Rhode Island College. And the Warrens would have this banter between them. Uh, Ed would say, oh, where's that slide? Or, you know, where's my, where's that microphone? What'd you do with a good microphone, Lorraine? Well, Ed, I told you to pack it. If you didn't bring it, that's not my problem. Now, you know, and people would laugh, and you just love this couple. I Again, I did not agree with their methods, uh, especially not during that case in, in Harrisville, Rhode Island. So mixed reviews, but miss them. Wish they were still around. Yeah. 
No, I, I guess when you, I don't know if you, did you watch the movie The Conjuring and were you shaking your head the whole time? My brother talked me into watching, into coming. I said, Keith, it's, it's not, I'm sure they're going to lionize the Warrens, make them into selfless heroes. And we were there. We don't need to recount it. Come on. He got as many of the original investigating team together as he could. I loved that movie. I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad I went. Uh, it was nostalgic. Rather than getting up and walking out, oh, this is bogus. No, I, I liked it. Because the parts that were real were tear-jerking to me. It's, you know, watching Ed and Lorraine again. And the house, the, not the exterior, but the interior settings look very much like the house did and does. You know, so I enjoyed it. It was entertainment. I just had to look upon it as entertainment, but very touched by the parts that reminded me of Ed and Lorraine Warren. So it was, it was, it was a good experience. Now there was a chance I heard from a very reliable source involved in the production. There was a chance I was going to be represented in that movie. Not my brother Keith, but Carl was going to be portrayed in that movie. And it was not to be favorable. Uh, it said there is no such thing as bad publicity. This would have been bad. You know, that, that's what I heard. I had to cover my base, my bases and insist that I not be involved in, in, you know, or not portrayed. You know, I'd love somebody to play me in a movie, but maybe not like that. <laughs> oh, so interesting for me. Yeah, I liked it. I, I, I'd go see it with you, Isaac. You know, it was, it was, I've seen it a few times. I like it. I, I don't know why I like it so much, but I like the movie, the way it was portrayed. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess it's coming close to a an hour fifteen over here. Uh, oh, we can't stop now. We're on a roll. Yeah. <laughs> I am anyway. Yeah. Do you guys have any uh, questions for me about the the show? Well, say something. Uh, trying to think. So you said this is coming out October. Uh, yes, it's going to be up to the last episode before Halloween episode. Okay. Um, it's, this is going to be the precursor to uh, the demon episode that me and Megan are going to do, which she's not looking forward to because she believes wholeheartedly that we might invite something into the room that we shouldn't. That she she has a I don't know if it's something you've ever experienced per se, but she gets a sick feeling in her stomach anytime she's around anything demonic and it's nature like uh she like i've ever been watching a ghost adventures episode where they have like a possession going on and she'll get sick by just hearing it um yeah i would i would say one of the signs that i would uh formulate especially with uh, salem massachusetts in the case that would say were legitimate in some form or fashion what would not necessarily be a stomach but i felt uh um i took martial arts for many many years so i i know this pain but felt like I was getting punched in the solar plex over and over and over again. And it kind of did create like a physical, physical sickness, but I could see that, um, the, it's cause it's an unnerving feeling. Uh, it, you know, these things, if do truly exist, are uh, predate human civilization by many, 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 many years. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, so uh, their energy, well, their, their, their their being is very suppressive to to who we are and to what we are. So yeah, definitely. Um, a question to you actually that I brought up, especially with the show, what you do, 
what is one thing that you think of a demon that you might believe is a misconception? That they can be in any way controlled or any way of free, uh, friendly. Demon is not friendly. <laughs> um, a demon would never be friendly. And to me, um, Carl actually uh, was a practicing Luciferianist. Uh, or Satanist than most people's uh, ideology is. Uh, I had a lot of resistant uh, um, approaches. Uh, he was a Satanist when he was a kid. Uh, I do not believe, in my opinion, you can control a demonic force because of how old they are and how uh, um, subtle, perhaps, and then pers- persistent. Persistent. Yeah. And I think where we tend to believe that we can control a demonic force is of course because we're as humans we think we're superior. Um and most times we they do allow that nature for you to think that you're controlling them, but in reality it's kind of like a reverse psychology. They're actually controlling you. They're wanting you to think that you can control them. And then that is when they switch um switch it on you and that is when they take over. Uh, because in reality most times the mind possession happens through invitation. That, I know. That, that person has to allow it in. So it's in that same form. Right? If you conjure something, you're you're invoking, you're inviting. So yeah. um, you're kind of allowing it to already play a metal with you. And I agree that, you you know, one of the signs is getting that gut feeling, you know, literally a gut feeling that something's wrong, something invasive, you know, is invasive. Uh, and there's not a surefire formula for banishing a demon. There are formulas out there. You don't know if they're going to work. You assume that the invasive spirit is hostile. That's why it's invasive. I mean, maybe there are demons that don't care about us and aren't malevolent towards humans, but we never hear from them. It's only the ones that threaten us that we do. So, yeah, there's something to it. The power of the demon must not be overrated nor underestimated. Yeah, they're, uh, you know, you, they're angry children. You know, they're invisible angry children, which is what makes them so frightening. But they need not be frightening. They're a malevolent force. They're not all-powerful. They're not omniscient or omnipresent. Uh, but they're persistent. You know, cockroaches, you can step on one and obliterate it, but there's more where they came from. They're, they persist. <laughs> so, yeah, demons can be banished uh, or at least waylaid and, and warded. Uh, so don't be terrorized by the demon, but, uh, yeah, take it seriously, of course. Yeah. So they can come back. That's what I try. I'm trying, or at least I'm going to, going to uh, try to stress <laughs> in our demon episode because you I better have us over. Yeah, it's it, it, in reality at the end of the day is um, even though it is a new thought mythology, uh, methodology I should say methodology. It's new. Um, new thought um, is basically the laws of attraction, and is if if you put out positivity, positive will come up come your way. And if you put out negative, negative will come your way. So if you want the negative, if you want the demon, it will come towards you if you want it. Be, yes, but be stronger than the demon. You can do that. It sounds like hubris, but you can be stronger than the demon. I mean, don't rely on your own strength. And an empty vessel is vulnerable, but if a vessel is filled with the Holy Spirit, it can't be penetrated. The strength of the demon is, is its persistence and it is unpredictable. You know, if it can scare you, you're on the defensive there. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's part of it. That keeps off your fear. Yeah, and I've been, I've fed them plenty of times when I've been scared, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, I stayed with it. 
And then, with it, yeah, so just, you know, warn yourself beforehand, reinforce yourself with the you know, reading of scripture. The book of Ephesians has a lot to offer, and the uh, uh, book of Proverbs has a lot of wisdom to offer, you know, to protect oneself. Mm-hmm. This prayer to St. Michael, all kinds of ways you can reinforce your purpose, your sense of purpose, and protect yourself. That doesn't mean you're not at all vulnerable, impenetrable, yeah. impenetrable, but you, you know, just don't, don't overestimate the demon either. Don't rely at all on your own strength, but you know, as James was saying, coming up against, in some cases, the wisdom of the ages, but you know, you can prevail against the demonic force. What's some, uh, I just had one, one more question, I think. Uh, what's the best armor? one could wear in a case of that you know you're entering a demonic well one thing you could do is familiarize yourself with this work this is a shadow realms demonology handbook it is co-authored by carl l johnson and lana j brock and it is a primer in demonology it contains some case histories things that i have run into and uh, some speculation some advice some theory uh it's a primer like i said it it was designed to, for one to carry it in their backpack and bring into a paranormal investigation or read before. It just shows some things that I've experienced mm. and that Lana experienced and, and some theory in, in essay form. Mm. So that's, that's a good thing. But, uh, what would you say about biblical reference? Uh, well, I, I say, you know, even though I am clergy, Biblical scripture is beautiful. And I will say the St. Michael's prayer, but I think the biggest thing for me when it comes to, armor situation would be actually faith. So even if you did not know biblical scripture or incite it, um, your faith is an uh, important thing. And it doesn't necessarily be, of course, I would hope it would be a faith in God, but it could be faith in general that there is a good reason why you're involved in the situation or why you're trying to get over this. If, if, if you play the victim or, or you are the warrior, there, there's those roles, but Faith's a very powerful thing. So yeah. I think that's the biggest armor. And of course, on top of it, to love. Um, if you have love in your heart and you're a kind-hearted yeah. person, you know, I think those things help you. For First Corinthians 1 to 13, mm-hmm. and you got uh, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, you know, put on the full armor of God. That, of God that's, a, that's a reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Even you, even music would be a reinforcement. That's too. a good point. I like music. Carl and I travel a lot together on, on, on the road. And I rely on his playlist. We listen to a lot of music. And uh, yeah. if you think about like shamanistic culture, you know, when they do drum circles, that's music. It raises your vibration. That's innovative too, that approach. So in that same time, music as well can help raise your vibration. Depending on what, you know, make sure everybody wants the same music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's many different, many different things. I think it's suitable to what you, uh, you are doing and of course who you are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like suppose you like Billy Idol dancing by myself, but nobody else likes that in the room is going to stand out. <laughs> so make sure you agree on the music you play. Yeah. That definitely. could be an effective tool. It could be. Yes. Yeah. So music, uh, scriptural reinforcement, uh, your own faith and a predisposition, a pre-resolution, mm-hmm. I'll say. That you're not going to be driven out. Mm-hmm. That no matter what startles you or what you encounter, you're going to stand your ground, and you're going to be feel protected and be protected at that critical time. Because if you run out, 
it's not the end of the world, but you may have trouble going into another situation. Or and people, or people contacting you, especially. Yeah, because it's not going to re, it's not going to reinforce the confidence of the people that you're trying to help. Yeah, because, uh, to, to, to state, Carl was on the first two, uh, two seasons of Ghost Hunters. There was Golden a, days, yeah. there, there was a suitable, uh, moment called, dude, run! Yeah. You definitely do not want to do that. Yeah, that was, that was notorious, infamous in, in the annals of Ghost Hunters, where one of the investigative team, he was the tech manager too, and they were in Eastern State Penitentiary, and this nameless investigator, who's quite well known, I just said his name. Read it. I said Brian Hummel. Well, that'll do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he tried to make a second career out of that, in fact. But at one time he became star. Well, now this is supposed to be a member of an elite team, a, a seasoned investigator. What do you want if you're on a ghost hunt? You want to, you really do want to see something. You don't want to just drive it out. You want to experience stuff and you want to record it. So he sees some motion. What does he do? He goes, dude, run! He and cameraman Dave hightail it out of there, you know? And that just did not make them look good at all. But it's in the same approach. I was there for it. You don't want two demonologists or a demonologist. No, so, dude, run! No, you know? I'm not going to say dude. So I'm just, so, but that's impervious too. That's, that's very much. Oh, needed. but when we did that episode of Ghost Adventures, that investigation, which was uh, filmed for uh, Ghost Adventures, I, I can't believe I said it. I was looking at the, the askew readings on an EMF detector. They were spiking. I couldn't resist it. I went, dude, look! Yeah. Oh, dude. I said the dude word, but to me, the dude, it's not demon, it's the D word is dude. So I said dude because they were famous for saying that, but uh, they didn't have that in the final edit, fortunately. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So that was a banner moment for Ghost Hunters, but a memorable mm-hmm. music. Yeah, so we are not going to do that. No, 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 no. All right. Well, uh, if somebody needs to leave the room, you know, if something's too hairy for me, do go outside. Yes. But you know, try to come back in. Of course. Yeah. Well, I uh, do appreciate you guys coming on. I feel very honored uh, to have Carla Johnson on here. Thank you. Uh, this is going to be more enjoyable shows for both of us. It's just very, like you said, very conversational. Yeah. So it opens us up. You said, yeah, it was honored to have you on, I guess. Thanks. My violin will play. You'll get there one day, George. Because this is, this is the future of paranormal investigation and innovation and demonology. This man right here. I saw thanks to you, though, really. I think we work well together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'll catch you weirdos in the next one.